0: No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
1: Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There was a gorgeous tapestry found under a tomb, and they were all after it. The worried importer, the man with half a face, the Englishman in an L.A. slum, and the lady wearing a green veil. But before it was over,
2: none of them had it, and two of the four were dead. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story The Baton Sinister.
1: watched a blood-red sun set behind an ugly purple storm out on the ocean. And the weird afterglow that crept into the canyons of the Hollywood Hills made me uneasy. Added emphasis to the disquieting phone call I received at my office from a man named Pollard Schindler, whom I knew was a very capable worldwide broker of bizarre art objects. In words that fell over each other in urgency, he asked me to meet him at my place at once. As I drove to my apartment, I figured the trouble lay ahead. But I didn't realize how close it was until I parked and started out of my car. <coughs> A bullet smashed the corner of my windshield and I ducked for cover, then hugged the building and headed for the rear where I was sure I'd seen a gun flash. I was halfway there when the side door flew open and Pollard Schindler himself stopped me. Barlow! He was white-faced and shaking, his eyes ringed by dark blue circles of fatigue. Barlow! Barlow! That shot! Yeah, somebody threw a slug at me, Schindler, from back there. I was afraid of this. We can't talk here, not now. Come, let's get in your car and drive. Hurry. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's all this about? Who shot at me and why? It... It must have been that lizard, Myron Loft. Oh? He's followed me all the way from England, Marlowe, because... But I... I tell you all about it when we're safe. Right now, we must get away from here. Okay, but watch yourself. Come on. Well, so far, so good. You see that hole in the windshield? It's lucky it's not in my head. Uh, Are we being followed? Not yet, anyway. Well, Pollard, last time it was a cloak of Kamehameha and a trip to Honolulu. What is it this time? It's worse a tapestry, of 15th century, and exquisite. Worth 20,000 as a museum piece alone. Hey, that's a lot of money for a chunk of cloth. Bah, it's nothing. I'm getting better than 80,000 for it from a man named Arthur Merritt in Seattle. 80 grand. Yes, correct. You see, this Merritt claims to be a direct descendant from Edward... Second Duke of York, who fell at Agincourt. Really? Yeah, he spent a fortune tracing his genealogy and collecting family treasures, and regards this tapestry as his greatest prize. Mm. Oh, it's a gorgeous thing, Marlowe. Depicts the Duke on a gold horse, riding to battle beside the King. What such colors—reds, blues, greens—breathtaking. How bad. Ah, but I'm so tired. I don't think I've slept in weeks. For 80,000 bucks, you can afford to be tired, Schindler. But how does the guy with the itchy trigger finger fit into all this? Loft, that scum, he was after the tapestry, too. He got wind of the fact that someone was willing to pay 80,000 for it. But he doesn't know who. I see. You found it first, Yes. Yes, huh? in a sealed tomb under the ruins of a castle in Wales. Just minutes ahead of Loft. Where's the tapestry now? At this moment... It's in a cheap suitcase checked in a public locker at the Cavinga Boulevard Bus Depot. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to pick it up and get it safely to Arthur Merritt. Here, here's the locker key. A ticket on a plane leaving in three hours. And your money, five $100 bills. Enough? Enough. Where'll I find Arthur Merritt? Uh, 76 West Street, Seattle. He'll be expecting you. And Marlowe, I feel better if you get the tapestry soon... And keep it with you until plane time. You're really afraid of this guy, Loft, aren't you? He'll stop at nothing. I warn you. Now, uh, I'll get off here at the corner, Marlowe. All right. Incidentally, when you get the tapestry, don't go back to your apartment. Loft may be waiting here. I'm at the Hollywood Crest Hotel. Hollywood Crest, huh? Yeah, call me when the job is done. Goodbye, Marlowe, and good luck. You'll need it. (laughs) The key Schindler left was numbered 410, so I drove to the bus station and went in. A casual walkthrough showed me that locker number 410 was the last on the left. Then I ambled over to the lunch counter, ordered a sandwich and coffee, and sat down to case the rest of the customers. Finally, I spotted him. A dark man in ragged clothes with a profile out of Western Asia who was also watching number 410. The profile glanced around nervously and looked away fast when he caught me watching him. I eased the key to 410 out of my pocket and slipped it under my sandwich. Told the waitress I'd be right back and started toward him. He saw me coming and made for the back exit. Broke into a run when he got to the door. We played follow the leader down the tunnel to the alley behind the bus barn and around a corner. There the game stopped. Because a claw that belonged on a lobster reached out, grabbed me by the shirt front, and pulled me up against 18 inches of curved Damascus steel sharp enough to shave with. I knew then why he'd shown me only his profile. Half his face was handsome, the other half... Well... When he spoke he hissed through the flexible half of his mouth stand still my friend or i slit your gizzard for you where is myron loft i don't know i never met the man up close that is liar you are working for him keep using that knife of punctuation pal i'll admit anything i followed the fat german i watched him put the tapestry in one of those lockers inside therefore i knew that loft or his hireling wouldn't be far behind you mean me you're off base what's myron loft to you Mm, what indeed only I know the true value of that tapestry, for it was I who paid for it, with half my face and half my mind. But
3: before I'm through, Loft will know, too, where is he?
1: I don't know, but I wish I were with him.
3: Shall I kill you for being stupid? Go to Loft and tell him that Akkar is not dead, but has come back to teach him the price of treachery.
1: This will surprise him, no doubt, huh? He
3: murdered me so I would not talk. He left me for dead. He sent me hurtling
1: unconscious off a bridge in a truck of blazing oil. It made me like this law for a hand, a face to frighten demons, but it did not kill me. Nice guy laughed. And the tapestry itself.
3: Tell him it will bring him nothing but despair, for I have put a curse of worthlessness on it that... Akar! There, from the alley, the shot.
1: Did you see who it was, Akar?
3: No, but I didn't have to see to know. He thinks he has finished it now, but he is wrong. Look. Look for the Baton
1: Sinister. What, what? Look for what, Akka?
3: In the Duke's shield, the Baton Sinister.
1: Akka. The words Baton Sinister, whatever that meant on his twisted lips, The twisted little man died. I walked back carefully the way I'd come, but life in the bus depot was going on as usual. The waitress gave me a hard eye when I sat down at the lunch counter again and the mirror over the back bar told me why. I was pasty green from eyes to mouth. The thought that death in an alley still did that to me was strangely gratifying. I got the key from under the sandwich, dropped a buck on the counter, and then went to lock up 410 and opened it. Schindler's tatted suitcase was there. I picked it up, took it over to a stall phone, and sat on it while I put in a call Lieutenant Matthews at homicide.
4: Oh, say that again, Marlowe. I don't think I heard you right.
1: Yes, you did, Matthews. I said a man with half a face named that car was shot in the alley back of Coinga Bus Depot. Probably because he knew too much about a tapestry.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's what you said the first time. Oh, who did it? You got any ideas?
1: Well, it could be a guy named Myron Loft. That's all I know about him, just a name.
4: Okay, I'll send somebody. Stick around, will you, Phil? Hey, hey, Lieutenant. Yeah?
1: You happen to know what a baton sinister is?
4: Uh, spell that for me, will you, Phil?
1: Never mind, Matthews. I'll call you again before I leave. When I left the bus depot, I drove to my office, took the suitcase upstairs, and after I locked myself in, I opened it under the lamp on my desk. Folds of dazzling cloth spilled out. I remember Schindler saying Duke was riding a gold horse, so I looked for that. Yeah, it was easy to spot. And from there, I located his shield. It was deep blue with three white roses on one side and a red lion on the other, and in the center,. Pointing diagonally from upper right to lower left was a thin line of still deeper blue. That was all I had a chance to see. Because a hand in a rubber glove clamped a wet cloth over my face and the sickly sweet odor went through me. Like
5: warm oil through a paper bag.
1: A hundred years later, I had a strange dream. I saw a pair of high-heeled green suede shoes, and then... and then a woman in a green veil looking at an empty suitcase. <clears throat> it must have been a dream. Because I couldn't move, and my eyelids were lead. When the green veil and green shoes left, everything went black again. Next time, it was no dream. I was face down on my office carpet alone and very sick to my stomach. I'd been chloroformed. I crawled over to the desk and pulled myself up. The suitcase was open and empty. Somehow I got the phone off the hook, dialed information, and a minute later I had my client on the wire. Marlowe, you sound sick. What is wrong? I am sick. You're going to be too, Schindler. Your tapestry's gone It was stolen. Gone?
3: Stolen? Yeah. Oh, no, no, it can't be. You plundering stupid fool, Marlo.
1: Why did what you? What did that... you say? I'm sorry, Phil.
3: Screaming in hysteria won't get it back, will
1: it? No. How did it happen? Well, I brought it up here to my office, but somebody was always in here laying for me. I was chloroformed and out for about half an hour. When I came to, it, it was gone. Now listen. You know a man named Akar, horribly scarred from burns?
3: Akar? No. Why? Did he get it?
1: Yeah. Not the way you think. He was killed at the bus station. What? It? I don't know. Akar thought so, and I'm getting tired of hearing that name loft. Hey, incidentally, what's a baton sinister? Baton sinister? Yeah.
3: A mark in heraldry, but why but that one? Mark... Well,
1: it might be important. What is it actually, Paul? Well,
3: it's, uh, it's simply a short line on a shield or a scutcheon. Mm-hmm. It runs diagonally from Sinister Chief
1: to Dexter Base. What does that mean? From upper right to lower left, maybe? If
3: you're facing the shield, yes.
1: It's the mark of
3: fraudulence.
1: But why? Well, I was told to look for the Baton Sinister by, uh... Hey, wait a minute, Pollard. Huh? What? There's something on the floor here. It looks like an envelope. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. There's nothing in it, but it's addressed to... Holy smoke, this is addressed to Myron Loft. 946 South Grand Avenue, L.A. Ah, I knew it. I knew Loft was behind the Tef But now we've got a chance to get the tapestry back. Where is this Grand Avenue? Yeah, it runs through a slum called Bunker Hill. Any cab driver knows it. I'm going down there now, Schindler. Good. I'll get there as soon as I can to cover you. Uh, and Marlowe, listen. The man is a devil. Be careful. Bunker Hill stuck up above downtown L.A. like a ward on a debutant's hand. The big street that had tunneled under it or bypassed it years ago left it nothing more than a dingy, isolated attic. the city's worn-out cast-offs finally end up to die. And the big hotels that open on the Swank street below had all carefully turned their backs on the hill. I parked near Angel's Flight and walked on the odd-number side of the street until I spotted 946, a crumbling yellow stucco rooming house that clung to the hill face from habit only. And I gave the windows a lot of attention to be sure no one was watching. And I went out of the corner, crossed, and came back. An anemic nightlight was on at the end of the hall. So I pushed my way through the smells toward a door with a grimy card that said office. I was about to knock when a voice purred from the landing on the stairs behind me. When you turn round, do it slowly, understand? eh, uh, perfectly. I dare say you're Pollard Schindler's man. Could be. Which makes you my lofty. Yes, huh? I've been up on the roof watching you. I expected you'd come before long. I suppose you want the tapestries. Now, how'd you guess that? Then what price has Schindler decided to offer me? Price you're kidding. Hardly. I don't enjoy humor. Perhaps you don't know much about the tapestry, hmm? Not much. I know more than I used to. I had quite a chat with Akka. Akka? <laughs> that's impossible. My ex assistant is dead. I know. But he lived long enough to tell me about the baton sinister on the Duke's shield. That's yeah, a lie, my fine fellow. There's no baton sinister on that shield, and that's. Unless... Oh, of course. That sly idiot. Akka would try something like a baton sinister. But for what purpose, I can't imagine. Just to make sure that you'd pay for his murder. What's that? It must have been a shock to find out he'd survived that burning truck accident you tried. So you finished him tonight with a bullet. Oh, that's strange. How much more do you know along this line? Enough to make bargaining more than worth your while, and I haven't kept it all in my head. I see. Well, my door's a second on the left. Now move along now, quickly. I see no reason to hurry. I do. See what you mean. <laughs> Although the accent was Oxford, the gestures were strictly skid row. So as I preceded myron Loft and gun into my lord's sagging chamber, I watched carefully for the chance I knew I'd have to take before long. But a small step toward a dark corner... No, no, don't try that. Told me it wasn't going to be easy. The gentleman with the flexed voice was being very wary about me. Now turn about and face me, quickly. So wary about me, in fact, that the quiet footstep behind him went unnoticed the footstep that had been made by a green suede pump that belonged to a lady with a veil also green. I now knew I'd actually seen earlier in my office. When she took her next step, the gun she clenched in her expensively gloved hand was raised high. It came down hard. Girl of my dreams, I thank you. That was neat, and believe me, not a moment Never too mind. soon.
6: Uh, he's not dead, is he?
1: No, he's just out cold. He's in deep freeze. But, uh. uh Aren't we being a little matter-of-fact about all this?
6: We are. Did yeah. you expect tears?
1: Well, from the veil, yeah. That's where I'm probably being misled. <laughs> I should concentrate on your green suede shoes. They seem to be more in character.
6: And you seem to be quite ungrateful. And Gabby. So let's move on some. Over there, that bundle. It could be the tapestry.
1: The tap... Hey, lady, you're not after it too, are you?
6: No. I came here to save your life. <laughs> I love you. That's charming. Come on, mister. Are we warm?
1: Hot. Yeah, this is it, all right.
6: Good. Now get back.
1: Away from it. Oh, no. Oh, yes.
6: Way back. And for safekeeping, into that snug little closet there.
1: Without so much as a peek? At the veil, I mean.
6: Without so much as another word, your mouth, I mean. Go on, inside. It won't hold you for long, but I don't need long anymore.
1: She was so right. Didn't hold me for long. Because even a misplaced hiccup could jar loose most any given segment of Bunker Hill construction. However, by the time I got to the street, it was Lady with veil and bundle tucked underneath her arm climbing into a cab, and only a tail lights getting out of sight around a corner. So I played the only bet left. She departed in a cab. Maybe she'd arrived in one, and maybe that one was still in line at the hackstand across the street at the back of the hotel. At number four, I connected.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. The doll with a veil. I brought her here.
1: Why? What's it mean to you? Everything. She's my long-lost sister. Where'd you pick her up? I can't remember. Okay, okay. Here, here's five. Now try it. Sure. It was a Sunset Gardens Hotel, Villa 12, which is around on the side.
4: But you know what else? No, what else? I'll bet this five she ain't really your sister at all. I'll bet she's really your wife.
1: Oh, you're so wrong. She's really typhoid Mary, Jack. You better fumigate fast, both inside and out. Huh? Goodbye. 30 anxious minutes weaving my way through the thick west brown traffic that any snail could have easily out-sprinted before I was finally parked away from Villa 12. Then out of my car and running toward the squat chunk of termite-proof old Spain. But I hoped that again meet up with both the lady who wore a mosquito net for a hat and my client's hard-come-by drapery. But the bungalow in front of me said no such luck because it was dark, closed tight, and as quiet as snow falling all the way around. Until I was in the back where each villa had its own junior picnic grounds complete with barbecue pit. Then from somewhere behind me, I heard it. First the rattle of paper, then a few footsteps, high heels, that I knew could be the green suede ones on flagstone. After that, over near the pit, liquid poured on wood and then sudden flame. It was the lady whose shoes I knew all right, but this time no veil. Only a face that might have been pretty if it weren't for the prancing shadows the flames threw over an expression that was a little more than determination, a little less than psycho. I moved close to her quietly. And when she had the tapestry unwrapped and was ready to make a little offering to the fire guards, I took my cue. Marshmallows uh, would taste better, baby, yeah, honest. You. Yeah, a little me and 38, not so little. So stand very still, honey, priceless heirloom included.
6: Oh, no, I won't. It's going to fire where it hey, belongs.
1: That's uh, a matter of opinion. Now,
6: well, oh, hey. let go my arm, you big hate. Drop
1: it. Let uh, it go, baby. Uh, better we dirty it than uh, singe it. Come on, let go. Uh, there, that's better. Now, come on, firebug. Uh, Who are you? Uh, Who?
6: Naomi, Marshawn. Got
1: it out. Okay. Now, tell me where you fit in the tapestry, or do we shake some more?
6: No, no, thanks. I'll... I'll tell you what you want to know. Who are you? Name's
1: Philip Marlowe. Cop? No, a private detective hired to babysit with the tapestry. Let's not change the subject.
6: Okay, okay. Getting there. I'm Arthur Merritt's niece, and sole heir. The
1: guy in Seattle who's waiting for me to deliver this item is your uncle?
6: Uh-huh, my uncle, the jerk.
1: Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You steal the tapestry, risk your life, play with guns and with people who only play for keeps. Also, you can get a chance to burn 80,000 bucks worth of fancy needlework.
6: Listen, my uncle has been throwing away his money on antiques, and all he's got left of a half a million is a hundred grand. I don't want four-fifths of that used for this stinking substitute for wallpaper. Anything else?
1: Yeah. How long have you been working on this project, this Operation Arson? A week.
6: Came down from Seattle when I learned that the man my uncle was dealing with was named Pollard Schindler. You can fill it in from there. Now, do you mind if I leave? I'm looking forward to bed and a good cry. $80,000 worth. Do I go?
1: Yeah, on one condition. Your gun, baby, it stays. I watched her until she was around at the front of the bungalow and out of sight. And I grabbed up the tapestry and started to fold it when... A sudden flare from the fire threw a crazy spurt of light over the material on my arm. And I saw that on the shield that the Duke of Kent carried, there was no baton sinister. This was not the same tapestry I'd examined in my office. Right then, just to make things all the merrier, I once again heard from Naomi Martin. (laughs) On the even chance that this was a trap, Naomi playing possum with healthy lungs, I ditched the tapestry in a nearby clump of trees, then gun in hand ran for the front door of Villa 12. I got there just as the gray convertible lights out, roared off, and Naomi was climbing back onto her feet.
6: What took you so long? Now,
1: listen, you, the real tapestry, where is it?
6: The re Oh, no, you're kidding.
1: Baby, that number you just tried to burn is not the one I started out with tonight. It's minus Baton Uh, Sinister.
6: Minus who? What are you talking about? Just
1: this. Maybe you still have the tapestry and the routine with the flames was done with a phony and strictly for my benefit.
6: And maybe you're nuts. Now you listen. What I told you before was the truth, nothing but... However, if it happens to work out that I walked off with a phony and you did likewise, I'm sorry. I'll
1: bet. For the time being, I'll buy it that way. Now tell me what went on here.
6: Uh, I was about to unlock the door when it happened. A a hand with a rubber glove grabbed me. Wait a minute,
1: wait a minute. Rubber glove?
6: Rubber glove. Do we say everything twice? Mm. Whoever it was obviously didn't want to leave fingerprints.
1: Oh, the smell of chloroform on his hand.
6: Hey, come to think of it, I, I did get a whiff of something funny. How do you know about that?
1: In my office when the tapestry was... Wait a minute, you were there. Didn't you get a look at him?
6: No, there was, there was only a single light on, and you were already out cold when I got there.
1: Yeah, but you must have seen something.
6: Sure, stars. After he took the tapestry, then laid an envelope of some kind next to you, I, I told him to reach way up. Got me piled into a heap on your office floor. The envelope? He ran. I, I followed, but I lost it. Hey, I
1: hey, hold back it. And, and back, and back up, had... Naomi. What? Did you say he placed that envelope there next to me?
6: That's what I said. See what I mean? We were we Cut did it out, see baby. It. I've got an
1: idea of thought. About a baton sinister and what's really going on. Also, it just occurred to me that Myron Loft might not remain unconscious forever, and that my client was going to cover me at Loft's place on Bunker Hill. Well,
6: well, wait, where are you going,
1: Marlowe? Once I pick up the tapestry I just hid, which may not be a phony, back to Bunker Hill. So long, kid. <laughs>
3: Oh no.
4: Somebody. Somebody called the police. Marlow.
3: Oh
1: Marlowe.
3: Marlowe, thank goodness you're here. I I just shot
1: Myron Loft. You did what, Schindler? Yes. Caught the Dead Marlowe. Hey, hmm. for the love of Pete,
6: what's going on in this joint? Now then you can help, sweetheart.
1: It was terrible, Marlow. I came to this place after I didn't hear from you and found out which room Loft had. When I went in, he was on the floor, unconscious. So I started to look around for the tapestry. In the meantime, Loft came too, got hold of a gun and rushed you, is that it? Yes, we struggled, and then the gun went off. Oh, Marlowe, what should we do now? Call the police? Yeah, I'll take care of it. You go back into the room there and don't touch anything and see that nobody else does. All right, Marlow. But uh, you have to tap it through. Yeah, I got it, Schindler. Safe and sound. Your worries are over.
4: I'm a side. Detective Lieutenant Matthews
1: speaking. Hello, Matthews. Oh. I'm at 946 South Grand Avenue, and so's another body. What? At Myron Loft, I mentioned. My client, Paula Schindler, just shot him in self-defense. Which also clears up the death of Akar out behind the
4: bus depot. huh? I mean, Loft got him and then tried for your client, but missed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if you believe my client. Yeah,
4: well, I put. Per- oh,
1: Marla, what are you reaching for? A few very tasty but hard to swallow facts. One, my client's a liar. Two, my client killed both Akar and Myron Loft. And three, I've been set up and used as the neatest chump, patsy sucker, fall guy. They all fit. He even shot through my windshield for realism. Well, Schindler never had the real tapestry, Matthews. He had only a phony. He gave it to me to deliver and then swiped it from me. After which, he put me on the trail of the real one.
4: Uh-huh. So while swiping it back for him, like the good private detective you are, you'd come up with the real one, huh? That's
1: tidy. I'll be right down, Phil. Okay. You, you told the police what happened, Marlow? Yeah. I told them, Mr. Schindler. I told them everything. Now, there's nothing for us to do but wait. <laughs> does it, Lieutenant. Seven full pages of con- confession from Mr. Pollard Schindler, a very crafty bird. Yeah,
4: yeah, thanks, Mooney. Oh, uh, bring that girl in a couple of minutes will you?
1: All right.
4: Lieutenant. Well, Phil, here it is, the whole story. Yeah? Yeah, look, Pollard Schindler went after the tapestry in England, but Myron Loft got there first. However, Schindler was the one who knew where he could sell it way above museum price, so Loft had a duplicate made up and saw to it that Schindler stole it from
1: and it was Ecker who added the baton sinister, the mark of fraudulence in heraldry, to the fake tapestry.
4: Uh, yeah. yeah. But I still don't clearly follow the rest of it, Phil. I mean, here in L.A.,
1: you know? Oh, well, it wasn't much of a change. Another verse, same song. Loft stayed close to Schindler all the way back to England. Yeah. And he watched and he waited until he figured that Schindler was ready to close his deal, you see. Yeah. And he stepped forward and announced that the tapestry Schindler had was a phony. Oh. And that he'd given the real one for a healthy cut of the sale price.
4: Uh-huh. And Loft couldn't go to Merritt direct because he didn't know who Merritt was. Sure. Oh.
1: And from there it was me, the Patsy, with the best of references. Oh. That do it for
4: you? <laughs> yeah, just about. Schindler killed that car whom he didn't expect in the scene, and Loft, who he did, so neither one could spill to you. That's right. Now it... Uh, yeah, come in. Come in. Now, when did hey, you... I'm... Oh, just a minute, Miss and please. Uh, when did all this come across to you,
1: Phil? When I got mixed up with the lovely lady here, she told me that the man who had chloroformed me in my office had carefully placed an envelope on the floor next to me. An envelope I later took as a clue. From that switch, I started to look around for others.
6: Oh, great. Hooray for Campfire Girl Me. What kind of a medal do I get?
1: Eh, you get a pretty nice one,
4: Miss Marchand, thanks to Marlowe. You get freedom. You know, we could prefer charges against you.
3: Like what?
4: Like what? Like assault and battery for slugging Loft. Grand larceny for the theft of the tapestry from Loft's place. Attempted destruction of okay, private property. Okay, properties. okay,
6: okay. I, I forgot about those things. Yeah. Thanks, Marlowe.
1: Thanks, Marlowe. Is that your official statement no more, not even I'm sorry before you go?
6: Well, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, all right. Real sorry that I missed. Goodbye. <laughs>
1: another hour and my signature was on another dozen official papers before I was free to leave Matthews, who kept the real tapestry but gave me the one we got back from Pollard Schindler, the one with a baton sinister on it as a souvenir. So by the time I got back to my apartment, it was pushing four o'clock in the morning, and I was tired, tired of a night that had been jammed full of crooked people who had taken crooked paths half across the world, chasing a buck. So tired, in fact, that I didn't notice Naomi Marchant leaning across the door opposite mine until she spoke.
6: Marlowe. Marlowe. We could take that tapestry you have there, even if it's a phony one, and fly to Seattle and sell it to Uncle Arthur before he knows anything about what happened here. Marlowe, we we could... Marlowe? No. Marlowe. Marlowe.
1: Go away now. There was only one thing to do. Put both hands firm on her shoulders, spin the girl around and across my knees... Oh, well. I was too tired for even that.
2: The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore and are produced and transcribed by Norman McDonald. Script is by Mel Donelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oront. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says. Rain
1: slashing a glass roof, an old man's curiosity, and an imaginary imp out of place. They all became important when two people died violently, so a third could make a killing.
2: speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
5: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
7: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement.
1: Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time, rain slashing a glass roof, an old man's curiosity, and an imaginary imp out of place. They all became
2: important when two people died violently so a third could make a killing. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Fatted
5: Calf.
1: The first film of the season came as a surprise it always does in L.A., where somehow or other people are never ready for it. That's <laughs> funny in a town where people are ready for anything. For every year, the opening slash of lightning stands nerves on edge and cracks composure like it was so much Dresden China. And by five o'clock in an afternoon of driving rain and thick gray sky, I was no exception. I wasn't helped any by the arrival of a special delivery letter, a hundred-dollar bill in clothes, which dragged me out of my suddenly cozy office, into my car, and over to Studio City in the San Fernando Valley. Where according to the letter, Junius Poppy, the veteran cartoonist and creator of the impish Peter Pageant comic strip, wanted to see me at once. But as I wound up the spiral of Macadam called Sunswept Drive toward number 3840, I forgot about the storm around me and wondered instead about the man I was going to meet. Wondered just how many parts Pixie, the originator of a half-leprechaun, half-very-funny human being, who tickled the nation's satiric funny bone daily from coast to coast was going to be. And when I was parked in front of the place, which was a few million raindrops bouncing off a roof that was all glass, out of my car and going to the front door, I had made up my mind. Junior's poppy had to be small, slight, delicate, and maybe self-effacing, but certainly pleasant.
3: Mr. Marlowe? How wrong can I be? Huh?
1: Oh, uh, Mr. Poppy.
3: Yes, of course. Come in, come in. You're getting wet. Follow me. Don't touch anything. You're soaked.
1: (laughs) Junior's poppy was tall, heavy-set, gruff, and a crab. I dripped little puddles of water behind him through a long hall into a studio, which was a half a dozen easels under twice as many fluorescent lights, and a litter of Peter Pageant drawings everywhere. Then while Mr. Poppy did not offer me drink, cigarette, or even chair, I became resourceful. I took off my own coat, dropped it in a corner where it sloshed into a disgruntled heap, and I defiantly lit a cigarette and started to... Please, I despise tobacco. Oh, excuse me. Now, first, Mr. Milo, a few facts. I have been drawing Peter Pagan for 27 years, but unlike most of the syndicated cartoonists, I employ no staff. reuse no material,
3: allow nothing to be published that I haven't created personally, down to the last stroke of the pen. Hmm.
1: However, I do have an assistant who serves two purposes. One, he inks in the balloon. What? The circle is where the words go. Oh. And two, and more important, he watches me work daily so that when I'm gone, <laughs> yes, even cartoonists die, now. Peter Padgett will continue uninterrupted. My assistant is named Sid Kagan. And he, uh, to be more exact, his wife, Louise, is the reason I'm hiring you. Twice I so opened my mouth to ask a question, but Kagan twice he waved the question man, aside. So liking him less by the minute he's I listened to him tell me what for the past and week Kagan had been. First preoccupied, then the upset, and finally rebellious. Poppy, a bachelor, uh, didn't want to lose uh, a good man because of anything as trivial as a marital problem. Had investigated and learned that Louise Kagan had spent a week in San Francisco recently. But he hadn't learned any more because an appointment he had made with her to talk it all over since the sleuthing was not subtle. It wasn't quite. Come before up. yesterday, Marlo, we were to meet at a cocktail lounge. I was early, and so I saw her come in and sit down. She's the type of tall brunette you don't miss. I was about to start toward her when she suddenly leaped from her table and hurried out of the place. For no reason. Please don't interrupt me, Marlo. Of course she had a reason. Mm. She was frightened at the sight of a man approaching her. Oh, he was very ugly. Patent leather hair, sallow complexion, eyes that belonged to a hawk. He followed her out, but she got away from him. And then he disappeared, too. And Louise hasn't called you since to explain?
3: Until late last night, no. And then she apologized and lied about why she didn't show
1: up. Forgot, she said. Casual-like. Huh? Overly casual-like, Mr. Manor. Please don't touch those rings. Oh, my, sorry. Yes, now. We made another appointment for 6.30 tonight at a different place. An artist hangout called the Talisman on Lancashire. This time, Arlo... I want you to go in my place. Perhaps my approach is too mechanical. There's just a chance. Now, Mr. Poppy, a few questions. First, the Kagan's home address. 717, uh, Magnolia Boulevard. 717. And Kagan himself, he's still working for you regularly? Yes, although he called this morning, said he was sick. Now, please, ask your questions quickly. I must return to my work. Peter Pageant's schedule, four frames a day, hasn't been interrupted in 27 years. Mm. Oh, here, this might interest you. Here, take a look at this. The last frame has a lot of detail. Yeah, it has. Peter addressing the U.S. (laughs) Senate, huh? Cute. You always work in pencil and ink in later? Yes, yes, that's right. Now, anything else? Yeah, there is, Mr. Poppy. The whole business. Kagan's problem. I mean, if it's only a case of a gal not being true to a guy, I quit. And you get your dough back. I graduated from the -the over-the-transom class. Louise Kagan is not the kind of girl who plays around. I know. What makes you so sure? Well, for one thing, an example. Maynard Roper. Who? Maynard Roper. He's an agent for Empire Features, the syndicate that handles my work. And though extremely handsome and what the ladies would call smooth, he got no place being, um, uh, should I say, attentive to Louise. I could tell. I observed. Uh, Now, satisfied? For the moment. I can still play that Roper just wasn't her type. I'll call you later, Mr. Poppy. Goodbye. And uh, don't bother showing me out. I can find the way myself. Impulse number one said nuts to the funny on paper only, Mr. Poppy. But impulse number two said, Quiet, Marlowe, it's the storm that's making you jump in. There's a hundred-dollar bill in your pocket. So I got into my car and drove the mile-and-a-half to 717 Magnolia Boulevard, where I figured I'd look over the Kagan home grounds before it was time for me to show at the talisman. As I drove past the place, I saw there was a light in the living room and a woman, brunette and attractive, who was no doubt the lady of the house, paging through a magazine. And things stayed like that each time I came around the block, 20 minutes later when I parked in front of a nearby corner drugstore to get cigarettes. I forgot the lady of the house because getting out of a parked car in front of me was a man with sallow complexion and eyes borrowed from a hawk, easily seen by the rain splash light from the display windows. And when he hurried inside into a phone booth, I saw the patent leather hair Mr. Poppy had already described. And he got his call through and turned his back to the street. I moved quickly to his car, opened the front door, struck a match and read the name and address on the owner's card strapped around the steering wheel. It was Burt Slack, 200 Central Avenue, San Francisco, California, the city in which Louise Kagan had recently chosen to spend a week. A clock on the dashboard reminded me it was 6.15 in time to head for my rendezvous with the talisman. But a little voice deep inside said Mr. Burt Slack shouldn't. So, for what it was worth, I reached under the dashboard and yanked the ignition wire. Then I got back into my car, hoping to gain ten minutes, and headed toward the club on Lancashire Boulevard.
5: Another scotch and soda, sir? Keep the rain from soaking all the way through, you know.
1: Eh, hey, yeah, all right, another scotch and soda. Uh, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hmm? That lady there, the one in the blue cape just came in? Oh, yes, yes. Ask her to come over to Mr. Uh, Poppy's table, will you? We'll order there.
5: All right, sir, in a jiff.
1: Keep the rain from soaking all the way through. Isn't that awful? Sir, yeah, I'm
8: awfully sorry I'm late, Junie's. I... Oh, excuse me. Uh, waiter, you've made a mistake. No, no,
1: Mrs. Kagan. The mistake what? was mine on purpose. You wouldn't have known me by name. Which is what? Philip Marlowe. I'm a friend of Junius's. He was tied up with his work tonight and asked me to keep this date for him. Like a drink?
8: No, thanks. I haven't got the time. But why didn't Junius call me or leave a message here?
1: I don't know. Perhaps he forgot her.
8: Perhaps or... you're a liar. Perhaps he called my place after I left, then called here. Waiter. Yes, ma'am. Will you please check with the captain and see if anyone left a message for Mrs. Kagan, please? Yes, ma'am.
1: And on your way back, two Scotch and sodas, huh? Yes, ma'am.
8: Now, just a minute, Mr. Marlowe. I've already said no.
1: As long as we're playing things back, you already said I was a liar. Why?
8: Because Junior's told me that my meeting with him would be personal. And since he's gone far enough out of his way to even call me on the telephone about it, it must also be important to him.
1: Yeah, it is. As important to him as, say, San Francisco is Sa- to you.
8: So you're not really a friend of Junior's poppy?
1: Not buddy-buddy, no. But I am a friend of Bert Slack's.
8: You know Slack?
1: Yeah. Now, why don't you sit down, Louise? Our drinks are coming.
5: Well, here we are. Two scotches and sodas. Just the thing to keep the rain... Oh. (laughs) I already said that once, didn't I?
1: Yes, you did.
5: Yeah, well, uh, two scotches and sodas, just like you ordered. Oh, and, uh, uh, no message for you, Mrs. Kagan.
8: Thank you. Mr. Marlowe... You know about San Francisco, you know about Bert Slack, and somehow or other you know I was supposed to meet Junius poppy here, and he couldn't make it. So why don't you just sit here and think it out all by yourself, huh? I'm going. Come
1: back here. Let go of my arm. When I'm ready, gentle lady. Which might be right now, don't you think?
8: Oh, Maynard, thank heaven you're here.
5: I usually am, Louise. Well, my good man, have you reached a decision? About the young lady's arm, I mean. Let go.
8: Maynard, please see that he doesn't follow me.
5: It'll be a pleasure, Louise. What are we drinking, Mr... Marlowe,
1: uh... Marlowe. Marlo. Scotch and soda. Hmm. Wonder what keeps that from soaking through. Maned man at Roper, the handsome syndicate agent, Junior's poppy, had tagged very smooth, was also very snide. When he slid into the booth next to me and we each had a fresh drink while Louise Kagan put distance between us, I knew that the urge I had to punch him in his finely chiseled Grecian nose could not be blamed on the stormy weather. It would be just as much fun on a sunny day. And a couple of minutes later, when he got up, flashed, glistening uppers and lowers at me, and started to leave with a worse and snide. Bye-bye, boy. I had to hold on tight. Somewhere along the line I slipped. Hey, Roper! You forgot something. Oh? Well, what is it? This! <clears throat> oh, there we go. Also, you didn't thank me for your drink. It was rude of you. Bye-bye, boy. <laughs> Outside, I felt better. As I walked around to the alley behind the club where I parked my car, I noticed that the rain had tightened up to a drizzle that was about ready to call it quits. that a corner of the sky already showed dark blue with a single star front and center. But I didn't notice until I was in line with my front fenders was company on hand. I have been waiting for you. It was so oh wide open eyes that flashed something close to hysteria the length of a long, thin arm that was pointed at me and trembled while the hand awkwardly held a gun for what had to be his first time. I am Sid Kagan. I want to know why you're following my wife, what you have to do with her. I do know that you are a private detective and that your name is Philip Marlowe. That Junius poppy hired you. That much I found out. And you ought to be able to put the rest together yourself. You're a big boy now. Junius is worried about you, Kagan, because you won't turn are worried about your wife. Look, he wants to help you all the way around. I don't believe you. I only believe that people are bothering Louise, molesting her, driving her out of her mind, and I... I want to stop them. I want to protect her. All right. Take a look at this picture and see if you can tell me whether or not this is one of those you say are molesting her. Picture? Let me see. I can't. It's only a calling card, Kagan.
3: Don't give me that gun. Sure.
1: With a clip out. Here. Now, also, I'll give you some advice. Go on home, Kagan, and soak your hot head in a bucket ice cold. It's the most you can do to help. Now, beat it before I get mad. Go on! All right. I'll go. But remember, Marlo, I'm still going to protect my wife. Yeah, remember, Kagan. You jerk. Nothing as stupid as an amateur with a gun.
5: Stand still, Marlo. I'm no amateur.
1: Oh, fine.
5: I wouldn't bother looking under the hood either. We're now even. One torn ignition wire deserves another.
1: hmm? Well, Mr. Slack. You and that thirty eight been waiting long?
5: Long enough. So you're a private detective, huh? Now, that's interesting. I'm a private eye, too.
1: Really? You find crumbs in every profession. Where do we go from here? No
5: place. It's a team, anyhow. I'm finished. I've done my little job. I'm leaving town. The personal business that brought me here is over and done with. All's well. You'd be smart to look at it that way yourself, Jack.
1: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. We'll go over big with my client, wouldn't we?
5: What's the difference how it goes over with your client now? Why oh, don't you read the papers.
1: Meaning what?
5: The latest edition. Here, catch. Hey. And read.
1: Junior's poppy. Found.
5: Out loud, Marlowe, please.
1: Found dead in his Studio City home. Creator of Peter Pageant shot to death.
5: Mm-hmm. Surprised, huh?
1: Yeah. Plenty.
5: Well, that's too bad. But I guess you'll get over it Why do you walk all the way down this alley without turning around. Now, go on. Move, Mr. Marlowe. As directed. Goodbye.
2: In a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... You'll say, Where is the time gone when you listen to Club 15, the great quarter hour show of melody, song, and patter, starring Dick Hames with the Andrews sisters, Evelyn Knight, and the Modern Airs? You'll like singing host Dick Hames. You'll like song stars Evelyn Knight and the Andrews sisters. In fact, you'll like everything about Club 15. Listen every weekday evening over most of these same CBS stations. Tune
3: in, tune in this fall for the show that you love best of all. Listen carefully,
2: here's the address It's C-B-S-C-B-S. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Fatted Calf.
1: When the man named Slack with a code of ethics to match said, Walk, I walk, by the time I'd taken ten steps, I knew that he was already gone, so I went back to my car, cursed my way through a fast repair job on the wiring, and headed to my late client's studio again. When I got there, the usual messy routine of cameras, tape measures, and notebooks was still in progress, and I was about to go inside. I changed my mind when I saw Louise Kagan step blithely out the door and walk almost jauntily over the flagstones that led from the house to the parking area. Hey, Louise, wait! Oh,
8: You again! Well, what do you want?
1: Just one good, morbid reason why you're not making with tears over what's inside.
8: I never lost any love in there. If I pretended I had, it wouldn't fool anybody for five minutes. Nobody liked Junius, Poppy, and I was no exception.
1: I'd go real easy with that kind of talk from now on if I were you.
8: What's that crack supposed to mean?
1: That not later than tomorrow morning, your husband, Sid, will take over Peter Pageant completely. So? So you struck gold. You're in, You got it made.
8: Are you implying that I had something to do with Junius' death?
1: Oh, I doubt that you pulled the trigger, baby, personally. But there's a good, solid connection, and I'm going to find it. Where's your husband? Inside with the police?
8: No. I came here looking for him. He must be at home. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. How much do the cops know so far?
8: Nothing, except that Junius died between two and three hours ago. Look, why don't you trot in and ask them yourself, Quizmaster?
1: I don't think they can help me. You see, I'm still interested in a big, ugly question mark, all wrapped up with San Francisco. Look, Mr. And before I turn loose of it, I'll understand it, believe me. I'm going over to your place now to talk to Sid. Can I give you a lift? No, thank you. Suit yourself. I'll get there ahead of you, and I might find something you wouldn't want me to know about.
8: All right. I'll ride with you. Let's go.
1: Let's do that. Get in. <laughs>
8: Thanks so much for the ride. You know, I wouldn't have enjoyed it a bit more in a hearse.
1: You can drop the acid routine, Louise. I got a thick skin. Let's go inside.
8: Now, look, Marlowe. Sid it isn't home, I can see from here the lights are out.
1: Only prove somebody turned a switch. Come on, open up.
8: All right. Come on.
1: That's better.
8: And since you're making yourself so at home, you might as well make yourself a drink.
1: Hey, it's a good idea. Nice little bar you got here, honey. Always easier to talk with a drink in your... uh, Hey, Louise, these papers on the table. Ever seen them before? What are they? Contracts, I'd say. Yeah, all filled out. Just waiting for Kagan's signature. So your husband is now a full-fledged, big-time cartoonist. What do you know? <laughs> Pretty fast work, huh?
8: Just what the
3: Creator have... of
1: Peter Pageant's been dead not more than three hours, and already his successor's contracts are drawn up. No wonder Junius was bitter.
8: Maynard Roper had those drawn up beforehand, just in
1: case. Yeah, just in case somebody's patience ran out. Could be your husband's. I want to talk to him. You're out of your mind. He's been here, baby, and not long ago, either. Here's his trench coat on the chair. What? Maybe he left again, and maybe he didn't. Now, you take a look through the rest of the house, and if you find him, tell him to come on out. There's still time to talk. Well, go on. (laughs) She gave me a glare that said she'd like to run my head through a garbage disposal unit and walk past me to the hall. I held the trench coat I saw an interesting smudge on the elbow of the right sleeve It was an imprint of the little cartoon character Peter Pageant in the exact pose I'd seen earlier Peter Paget addressing the United States Senate It could only mean one thing The right sleeve of the coat I was holding had been jammed down into wet ink on Junior's Poppy's drawing board shortly after I'd left the studio at night I was still looking at the coat when Louise came back She started to say something but the doorbell interrupted and kept on interrupting and finally she walked over and answered it It was Bert Slack, the man from San Francisco. His face, green and waxy, would have worn the same look if he'd been falling out of a ten-story window and knew he couldn't hold on. He gripped the door casing with both hands, like a slow-motion fireman sliding down a pole. Suddenly, he jerked up one hand and pointed at Louise. He turned his eyes at me and tried to speak. Then he took five sliding, stumbling steps into the room and pitched headlong to the floor. Oh, no! Handle of a knife ringed by a patch of drying blood stuck out of his back between his shoulder blades.
3: Oh, Sid. Sid, you Sid. couldn't imagine. Have...
1: you think Sid did it? Why, Louise? What's the reason?
3: No, no, I didn't mean that. Oh, get away. Get out of here. Not
1: yet. Slack was a cheap private eye from San Francisco, and you just got back from there. What happened up there, Louise? Why do you think your husband had to kill this guy?
8: No, no, I won't tell you. I don't know anything. Oh, leave me alone. Get away please. All
1: right, all right. Get hold of yourself. You're hysterical. Now listen to me. Where does Roper live? Come on, main at Roper. His address.
5: 94 Addison Avenue. Why? Because your husband
1: might be there, and I want to talk to him now more than ever. You're on your own, baby. Get good and hysterical if you want to. I'll see
3: you.
1: 94 Addison Avenue was a shellac pine under ivy bungalow hiding behind 10 feet of manicured hedge and flanked by a small swimming pool that involved more chromium than water. The door opened in response to a deep-toned gong. I saw several thousand dollars worth of Chinese modern doodads behind the quilted silk smoking jacket wrapped around Maynard Roper, who first glared her helping of hated me and then changed his mind and smiled. Well, hello, Mono. You seen our hot-tempered Louise lately? Yeah, I just left her. She had the temper scared out of her when a guy died on a living room floor. How horrible. Yeah. This one had a knife in his back. He'd been carrying it for some time made it as far as Kagan's because he had something important to say, but he couldn't get it out. His name was Slack from San Francisco. Ever hear of him? Slack? Why, mm-hmm. no. Hey, tell me, have you seen Sid Kagan recently? I mean, was in the last hour?
5: Yes, twice. Once when I took his new contracts to his place, and again when he
1: came here to talk them over. He left a few minutes ago. Say where he was going? No. Wait. He did say he intended to stop at a drugstore. He had a headache. Which drugstore? Well, the one down the street about a block. Mm-hmm. Oh, but look, Marlowe, surely you don't really believe that Sid killed this man. He had a motive. Do you realize what you're saying? What have you got to go on, actually? A slip his wife made and a Peter Pageant that turned up out of place. Luis was no doubt hysterical. Under those circumstances, I'd be too. And as for Peter Pageant, don't forget that Sid's been practicing him for six years. He probably combs Peter Pageants out of his hair at night. Not this one. It was on a trench coat sleeve. I found it in Sid Kagan's living room. It was picked up from wet ink on Junior's Poppy's drawing board tonight. In fact, it was the last Peter Pageant, Junior drew before he was killed. That's what I've got to go on, Mr. Roper, so thanks and good night. I got in my car and drove fast till I found the drugstore and then pulled up across the street from the place and watched. A cab was waiting out in front. When the door opened in the store, I started to get out, but stopped again as Sid Kagan, the collar of his trench coat, turned up high. And both hands, thrust deep in its pocket, shouldered his way out. Got in a cab and drove away. I sat there for a few minutes until the crazy logic of the crazy pattern finally sank in. And I turned and drove back toward 94 Addison. A few houses down the street I parked, got out, and after dropping my gun in my pocket, I left my hand, curled around it, and walked in past the chromium swimming pool up to the pine and ivy house and looked in. It was deserted. I timed and started for the gate again, but that was as far as I got. I'm not inside, Marlowe. I'm here behind you. Don't move. Automatic and all, huh? Didn't think you had nerve enough to stick here and wait for me, Roper. I had no choice. Raise them up slowly and don't turn around. I'll take your gun first. Okay, now get inside. So it was your trench coat I found at Kagan's, huh? You forgot and left it there when you took the contracts over. Yes, and when you told me about it, I followed you. I saw you spot
5: Kagan still wearing his coat at the drugstore, and I knew then that you'd come back here after me. Why? Stand yeah. still.
1: Sure, sure. You know, you might have gotten away with old Junius Poppy's murder because you were the only one with no motive, apparently. But you cluttered it up by killing your partner, Slack, too. Slack was stupid and loud-mouthed. He'd a double cross meal let the cat out of the bag the first time he got drunk. Blackmailers have to keep their secrets or they go out of business fast. With you, it's obvious that I have no choice. It's you or me. Yeah. You're a smart boy, Roper. How'd you manage to cut in on what Slack knew? He tried to find out for me whether Sid loved
5: his wife enough to pay to keep her out of jail and how much he could demand and expect to get. I told you he was stupid.
1: Believe me, chum, the idea of getting rid of Junior so Sid could get enough money to make blackmailing him worthwhile was quite a switch. But one a good agent might think of. Stand still. Don't try for anything on that table. Why not? What are you saving me for? More conversation? No. I just wanted to get my breath. I've had quite a day, remember? All right. Let's go now. Where? Out, back to the garage. Go on. Yes,
8: Marlowe! Baby, go in! Marlowe, is he dead?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. You sure picked a sweet time to show up, baby. How'd you manage it?
8: I was out there a long time listening. When I realized what was happening, I came in.
1: Yeah. Save my thick skin or kill a blackmailer?
8: Once I killed a man, unintentionally. I didn't want to do it again, even him. But tonight, when I thought Sid had stabbed Bert Slack because of it, I I couldn't stand it any longer. I came over to find you and turned myself in.
1: The big question mark on San Francisco?
8: Oh, there was a brawl. I got mixed up in it. A man had a gun, and in the struggle, it went off and killed him. I was scared silly. I ran away, but... Slack had seen the whole thing. He even got the gun with my fingerprints all over it. And... Well, that's that. Let's go, Marlo.
1: Yeah. Okay, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Two refills, please. Okay. Better have some more, Sid. It's going to be a long night. Yes.
5: I still can't get it through my head that this has happened, Marlo. I can't realize it. Slack saw that fight in San Francisco, got the gun with Louise's fingerprints on it, and came here to blackmail.
1: That's right. He went to Roper for information on you, and Roper was smart enough to peg it and cut in. Killed Junior so you'd get more money by taking over the strip, and then... And
5: then he and Slack began to fight between themselves, and Maynard killed him, too. Mm-hmm. How can there be people like that?
1: Same way there can be rattlesnakes, black widow spiders, and cancer.
5: Marlowe, what is going to happen to Louise?
1: I don't know, Sid. Oh. But she's got something now she didn't have before. What is that? You. (laughs) You loved her all the time. But she didn't know what that meant. She does now. Look, she might be finished with the police. Maybe you better go over, huh?
5: Yes, I guess I'd better. Good night, Phil. And thank you. So long, Sid.
1: As he crossed the street and went into police headquarters I turned back to my coffee and thought about Peter Pageant <laughs> The impish, whimsical little character With a sly, knowing smile Half sad, half amused at the foibles of the world. Yeah, the world seems more and more to be made of halves. Like that old song. How's it go? Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm blue. (laughs) Sudden storms and sudden calms. Maybe most of us are only half alive, huh? Take me, for instance. Half of me wants to go home and sit in front of a roaring fire with a drink and a good book. And the other half. Yeah, there's always that other half.
2: The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Howard McNear, Parley Bear, Bill Johnstone, and David Ellis. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a wreck and went from there to
1: double murder over 75,000 bucks worth of glitter that nobody got in the end because I found out just in time what was fishy about the tale of the mermaid.
2: If you want to keep ahead of the headlines, listen every weekday evening, Monday through Friday, over most of these same CBS stations, to Edward R. Murrow with the news. Mr. Murrow is radio's most distinguished reporter. His informal but informed manner of presenting the news has earned him more awards than any other newscaster on the air. This is Paul Masterson speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.